If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio. The RCR Inquiry Sessions. Unpacking the COVID response for an honest inquiry. All right, welcome to Reality Check Radio, RCR's very first inquiry session. Yes, that's right, an inquiry session. The idea here is for these sessions uh, to be based on the fact that New Zealanders want and deserve a transparent and comprehensive inquiry into the COVID-19 response and everything it unleashed on this country. The policies, the emergency lawmaking, the science, science, the social division that wrought the court's role in underwriting it and all of that, and not another whitewash like the previous one, the silent one, uh, appears to have been. The inquiry sessions are aimed at examining what issues need to be on the inquiry table and why. We will endeavour to unpack everything we already know and all the things we still don't know, the known knowns, the unknown knowns, and the what did that guy say once? About how the COVID response was handled and what needs to be put under the microscope. We're starting off in this session with a discussion about the Pfizer contract and why it has to be part of the inquiry if New Zealanders are to get closure on all of this. I'd like to welcome Nadine Connick, who penned two articles about the Pfizer contract that were published in the Daily Telegraph, one in December 2021, the other in February 2022. Nadine, thank you so much for coming on RCR. Appreciate that. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. It's privileged to be here today. Okay, so those um, those two pieces that you wrote, a few years have gone by now since those. You want to reflect on that uh, period of time since then before we start sort of going over the, the points? Absolutely. Um, so in 2021, I was teaching English, um, the English languages uh, to refugees and migrants and was terminated um, due to the unlawful um, vaccine mandates. I basically had an academic background in international relations and politics and international humanitarian law. Um, And I saw a very clear playbook script of power and corruption um, and decided to follow the money. So while the majority of people were being hoodwinked to follow the science, um, I decided to sort of look at a way that I felt might be able to bring some sort of rational discussion to what felt like a utterly chaotic and very distressing time as people were trying to grapple with processing the beginnings of a highly orchestrated operation. Yeah, orchestrated, um, right? Yeah. Orchestrated. Orchestrated, yeah. So for me, um, fast forward, you know, three years to today, I've gone from follow the money to follow the fraud. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I think that's a really key aspect um, of what the investigation um, and an inquiry needs to look at. And we're in a position now where the environment legally is moving really fast. Um, It's actually really hard to keep up with, with what is happening. Um, and so being able to just look at the, you know, the money trail, um, as part of a, you know, a a power corruption analysis, um, really 
around that time that I was writing the articles, I was looking at some key players, which I think people really need to follow if they're not aware of them. They were interestingly ex-pharmaceutical developers, manufacturers, or PR consultants, and insurance brokers. Oh. So you had Edward Dowd, um, uh, insurance um, hedge fund, you know. Special. We know Ed, he's been on this program. Yep. So I looked at his work, you know, back then to write my pieces, and he was already raising further red flags on following the money, which was the shareholders panicking about, you know, the liability, the indemnity, the, the possibility of, of how much economic impact that was going to have on damages and claims even back then. Mm. Um, you've got people like Brooke Jackson, Sasha Latipova, Catherine Watts, Karen Kingston, Debbie Lehman, Meryl Nass, Thomas Raines. You know, if you've been tracking them for the last couple of years, they've been doing incredible work on trying to look at the ways that we can actually unpack the legislative capture, the judicial reset. You know, you've got people like NZDSOS, the, the doctors, the nurses, the silencing, the censorship in that particular industry. But my question was always around that time, well, where are the lawyers speaking out? Hmm. Where were they then? I think they were also a little bit hoodwinked by the pseudoscience, but they were, you know, they were sort of looking at the pseudo-legality or this... Um, intense indemnity which most people were saying oh you know it's just a normal indemnity clause well actually it's not at all and if you can get your hands on any of these pieces of contracts around the world you know we've, we've got quite a few contracts now that have been released and found heavily redacted of course yeah but you can actually draw some pretty grounded conclusions as to why we've seen New Zealand respond in the way that they have to Barry Young and the MOH data whistleblowing because essentially they're breaching their own contract as a violation um, to not uphold those indemnity clauses. Oh, okay. So that response, well, I remember, I've mentioned this a few times, I'll say it once more because it might actually really connect with you. And you might remember this when Christopher Hipkins had to explain as the COVID uh, minister um, or make a response to the leaking of the per dose price that, um, well, I don't know if Pfizer was being paid, but what I think the um, the uh, government or the taxpayer was paying individual injectors, $36 a dose it was. And he was asked if um, if there was any problem in, in that information being out there. And he said, I'm pretty sure it's uh, about what he said. Uh, he hoped that Pfizer wouldn't be too annoyed. Well, exactly. And so if you look at the indemnity clause paragraph, which is very, very long and very elaborate, you know, one of the key aspects to that indemnity is to uphold Pfizer as harmless, to d defend them, to ensure that there's no product um, defamation. And so any aspect of that indemnity, it doesn't just sit with the product itself, right? If you actually look at the clause, I mean, I could read it out if you're interested, but- the Well, clause, well if, you, if you think it'll help, we might as well- 
Shall we? Shall we do that? Because maybe yeah, let's hear what what they maybe, say. Maybe not many people have actually seen this. Yeah, no, um, sure. it is Go going on. around on Twitter, but it's very small print and it's quite hard to um, read. So there's basically two, right? There's mm. the standard identification uh, indemnification clause, and then there's another one called the waiver of sovereign immunity but let's start with just the standard indemnification by purchaser so eight po- this is coming off the brazilian contract by the way yeah um and just for people that maybe don't really know a little bit about these contracts is what we understand is that pfizer moved very very fast in order to roll out these um contracts so they used universalized standardized templates um and this was in order to to get vaccine rollout uptake really quick to to kind of go under expediency rather than due diligence um and so we've we've analyzed a lot of different contracts and the fonts are the same a lot of the terms and conditions are the same so we can pretty much you know assume that you know there's a lot of repetition there but let's just look at the brazilian one which by the way they actually Brazil, the Brazilian government, um, there was a big article by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism that published about these um, experiences with the Pfizer lawyers and the legal team and what they did to the state of Brazil. And they coined it as vaccine terrorism, that the leonine clauses were so difficult, so complex, um, that they were actually really concerned um, about signing to this. But let's just look at this indemnification. So I'm going to read it slowly because it's quite dense. Mm -hmm. The purchaser hereby agrees to indemnify, defend and hold harmless Pfizer, BioNTech, each of their affiliates, contractors, subcontractors, licenses, licensees, sublicensees, distributors, contract manufacturers, service providers, clinical trial researchers, third parties to whom Pfizer or BioNTech or any of their respective affiliates may directly or indirectly owe an indemnity based on research, development, manufacture, distribution, commercialization, use of the vaccine, directors, officers, employees, and other agents, losses, damages, liabilities, settlements, penalties, fines, costs, expenses, including without limitation reasonable attorneys and other counsel fees expenses of investigation or litigation whether sounding and contract taught intellectual property this is key we need to talk about this later or any other theory and whether legal statutory equitable or otherwise by any natural or legal person caused by arising out of relating to or resulting from the vaccine including but not limited to any stage of design development investigation formulation testing clinical testing manufacture labeling packaging transport storage distribution marketing promotion sale purchase licensing donation dispensing prescribing administration provision or use of the vaccine And now this last line is really key in what's happening with Barry Young at the moment. Any information, instructions, advice or guidance provided by Pfizer and relating to the use of the vaccine 
or any processing or transfer of anyone's personal information processed and transferred by the purchaser to the indemnities. That was beautifully read, by the way. Wow. <laughs> okay, yep. that last line is like a sledgehammer. Yeah. Load. So if there's any data, any information. That's why they're scrambling around like crazy. Of course. It's in the indemnification. They're breaching and violating. The and they have, But they haven't told us that. Well, why would they? Because no, then no. that yeah. also links it back to the censorship violation. They can't. If there's anything that could be dubious or could actually renege on upholding them as harmless, they're breaking it. Yeah. Who would sign up to that? Oh, well, this is the thing. So advanced purchase agreements were only given five days and New Zealand was bullied. A lot of other countries were bullied. We were told we were at the bottom of the list, we were down in the Pacific, that, you know, we were going to be in a queue and that we needed to get the vaccine acquisition um, and protect our, our population. And those wallies were just like, um, they were just like being fed to the lions, really, obviously, our, our wallies. They, they couldn't stand up to that at all. Well, exactly. And if you think about how difficult it is to get an apple or a banana through biosecurity into this country or frozen blueberries that have got hepatitis A, it is mind-boggling to yeah. be aware of the four main body regulators that did absolutely no duty of care, no due diligence in a chemical analysis, a product analysis, or a risk assessment. And all that that government task force did was cite timeliness, not due diligence, as the key importance. Because I remember that being said at the time that we were we had to move quickly and we were bottom of the world and there was anxiety about not being supplied, if I remember rightly. And um, and that seemed to be an issue at the time. So, okay, um, natural question out of that. Those who decided to move at the speed or accommodate that, what, five-day window, did you say? Five-day window. It comes down to five highly, days. Can you believe highly, that? Yeah, a highly complex legal document that required specialist lawyers. We're talking intellectual property rights, GMO yeah. organisms, new technological advances, um, and extreme clauses um, of indemnification. And I don't know how you would have got that signed off that quickly. You'd be – you'd be – really full of fear that your your population was about to be decimated so that you would have been convinced by something that this was such a high level threat that you suspend all rational thinking and 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 you know the safety of the nation or i'm thinking of the fraud word you used just before is i mean what is it do you think well if you consider that at some point, there was some terminology out of an OIA um, vaccine task force group document that said the context of operation has shifted. So what does that mean? We've Say got that again. Just repeat that. The context of operation has shifted. Oh, okay. So for a start, we've got the word operation. So what is this operation? Well, it was a military there was a military component to it, and they used that word a lot. 
Exactly. So prior to this context of operational shift, we had five vaccine candidates on the board. And then somehow the government made a decision or that task force or that decision-making committee made a decision to only have the vaccine candidate as being Pfizer as the sole provider, despite, yeah. despite advice saying they didn't know what certain population groups would respond to, that there was no you know, um, efficacy and they didn't know the results or the possibility of, of some consequences and adverse reactions. And hence, they were not likely to use Pfizer as the sole vaccine candidate. They literally reneged on that information. They actually had a, a, a partial consideration of risk. And then they actually went against their own wording and contradicted themselves and said, okay, well, we're going to use that solely. Um, so that brings us back to the question of inquisition, inquiry, COVID inquiry. What were the financial incentivization to do this? Who benefited? How much did they benefit? Why? Or who leaned on them? Exactly. Okay. Um, we, um, in one of our legal shows, it came up, the South African contract and the word instead of the, I'm going to have to remember exactly, um, you know, the sentence that appeared in, but essentially it described the, I don't think Pfizer vaccine as a kind of aspirational. That's right. Absolutely. So like, that's so vague. I know. And so when you look at these semantic games, they play the institutional language of control and legitimacy they can be as vague as they want when they want to be but they can be highly specific on the other hand when they need to be and so you do have these concerning legal terms around you know aspirational experimental um no you know no informed consent but really what's happening um with this particular operation let's say we're going to call it is that they they have done everything they can to break the law and in order to break the law they've needed to put in pseudo laws and illegal laws to circumvent our actual laws okay so give that, us a can you give us some examples of those yeah for sure so you've got Health and Safety and Employment Act 1992, which is now Health and Safety at Work Act 2015. Now they've got a primary duty of care to make sure that their workers are safe, that you know there's no injurious harm, there's no possible, you know, um, or potential cause or source of harm. And you've got Hazardous Substances and Noxious Organisms Act they're actually supposed to do analysis of biosecurity threats, um, of threats to harm, of threats to the environment, of threats to health, public health. Uh, biosecurity Act 1993, they've got a very particular hazard identification around economic well-being and human health. Obviously the Health Act 1956. I mean, these, these are all in place to identify and mitigate harm, not to cause it. Yeah. So what they've actually done to legitimize their product is put in 
a circumvention of these laws under the emergency response scenario of the pandemic. So in the States and in the UK, they're calling it, you know, the Public Health Act or Public Health Emergency Act, which is PHE. And then you've got the Emergency Use Authorization Act. You've got the PrEP Act, these sorts of things. So what they've done is they've said that under a public health emergency or a pandemic crisis, none of these normal existing rights apply. We can actually go over them, violate them, break them, breach them, not uphold them because there's an exemption. And I think going back to your question of where were the lawyers right at the beginning, I think their heads were spinning on the reality that in order to do what they needed to do, they had to create new illegal laws to break the law. But isn't that like like a government gone rogue? Well, this is what I mentioned to someone the other day. New Zealanders have gone from living under the illusion of procedural democracy, which is in order for you to have your rights, you have to play by the rules. And if you do this, then we'll do that. That's essentially procedural democracy to what is looking like a rogue state. Now, I've been in refugee camps in Lebanon. I've lived in Egypt. I've studied all sorts of failed states around the world. And I think a lot of people in New Zealand are finding it very difficult to, um, you know, consider the reality that we're not living in a democracy. Um, there's a term in international development when they look at humanitarian aid and failed states and the need to, you know, go in and provide water or sanitation or food or basic needs of absolute poverty or relative po poverty. And there's a, a spectrum around, you know, you need to be able to recognize that just because, you know, someone's experiencing extreme poverty in New Zealand, that you can't compare it to, say, extreme poverty in Somalia because my pain's your pain, their pain's their pain, that sort of thing. I'm beginning to, to think that Kiwis really need to have a look at this idea of absolute and relative democracy because a lot of people say, oh, but, you know, it's so corrupt in this country or it's so, it's so much more bad over there or this is going on <laughs> over there. And to see what is going on in this country, there is – uh, I think it's the Human Rights Commission, one of their, I mean, we, I don't believe in the UN anymore anyway, but for the, for, the, for the purpose of this conversation, there is actually an instrument or a framework, an architecture of basic human rights, which supposedly is the measurement of whether a state is democratic, totalitarianism or rogue one of those key principles is that the state has the responsibility to impart information to its citizens yeah you know correct so information <laughs> impart yeah. so if you do an oia request if you do a Lagoima request if you want a data release if you want to have a balanced discussion around breaches of human rights the bill of rights labor rights trade rights immigration rights um the government if it's operating under full and impartial democracy will have no problem in imparting that information 
it does yeah. not redact the information to the point that there's no information on the piece of paper. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, I was just thinking as you're reading, because part one of the lines I think out of that the contract clause that you or list of things that uh, that was everything, including the kitchen sink, um, <laughs> uh, that you read just before was what defending. Defender. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking no politician turned up the, at the door. Could that be seen as breaching the defending defender part of that contract? Because if you gave, and I'm not a legal mind, I'm just, just looking around at things that are coming into my head. But if you, you know, why did no politicians come to the door? Why did they all stay there? If they turned up and kind of legitimized just by turning up and meeting the protest, which was fundamentally there because of this, could that be a breach of that defending Pfizer? You know, you're sort of bringing the whole thing into some kind of disrepute, perhaps. I, I would think so too. And, and that means they would all know. They would have all been briefed. It's hard to know because what it looks like from some of these other contracts is that very particular decision-making committees were set up with particular people to keep that revolving door closed, to keep that information um, confidential, non-disclosure. Only the right people would know and be privy to particular parts of the information which might then give us a little bit of you know leeway into why some people just you know actually literally didn't know um it's a bit of a chicken and an egg question isn't it i mean we're not we're not going to know that because they won't let us see the oh well there is there are things that are hard to explain and there there'll be reasons um and explanations for what happened and you know one can only imagine but you know, with talking now, you, you wonder in that direction. So, if there's if there's an inquiry, they say there will be. You know, broad scope, wide ranging, everything on the table. It's going to be very difficult, isn't it? Um, given those clauses, um, can you visualize or, or imagine how all this can be presented at something like that? Well, it is going to take someone that has a huge amount of bravery a, you know almost like a whistleblower really to bring that Pfizer contract out into play it will be a breach it will be a violation I don't know I'm not I don't know enough about parliamentary processes or the the legalities around a new government being sworn in and you know are they under the same indemnif indemnification as say the Labour Party government or are they able to say well actually I didn't sign that piece of paper I didn't give the royal assent on that document it wasn't me the attorney general at the time that agreed to that if they were to rescind on a emergency use authority act or a special provisions or a public health emergency clause you know they're supposedly they're valid till 2024 if they were able to say well actually we don't we don't see a crisis at the moment we don't see that there's any special provisions required and therefore we want to smash out and get rid of these acts it would rewind us back to having all of those legal 
protections able to be in place. But until someone in the government says we either want to nil and void that contract under fraudulent misrepresentation. Because that fraud does allow you to do that, doesn't it? Well, there's a little, according to some of these lawyers at the moment that are, um, we've got a big case in Texas happening right now, Ken Paxton. Yeah, but we're um, Yeah, so they're re- it really is just trial and error at the moment. They, you've got to give it to them. It's, it's so honourable. They are going through these courts. They are trying every single avenue they can with arguments to try to, you know, find the loopholes. Um, and bring back a state of, of judicial democracy and fairness and rule of law. But you have to give it to this operation. They've sewn up every potential avenue, it seems. Every single thing you think of, um, they seem to be able to throw it out. So, yeah, it, we, I think we're getting there and we're getting closer. Um, it's really just going to be yeah how we do it i mean for example at the moment it doesn't seem to be that informed consent investigational or experimental medicine nuremberg code consumer and liability protections i mean they don't seem to stand up at all at the moment but i mean where it is starting to head i personally think is that it's going to be in the intellectual property rights patent field of law okay explain that a bit more so when you when you look at this as a marketing campaign as a huge product endorsement the liability and the indemnity on this product which by the way in the contracts is never named a vaccine is named a countermeasure ah but it was always publicly described as a vaccine yep so in a countermeasure, other, another military term. Exactly. Another militarized term of reference to biological warfare, warfare, um, terror, and yeah. So well, they, they, they really transmit it in, in, in plain sight a bit by the use of their language, don't they, kind of? Exactly. So for me, one thing I find curious is at what point is that product that's been injected into a human body going to therefore render you property of the manufacturer so i mean when when you're putting in a new patent and you're putting a new product out to the market you don't really want someone else to steal it right and if you do then you have a big argument about royalties and um, whose idea came first and originality and good faith practices around plagiarism and things like this. So if this is an experiment, if this is experimental technology, if it is an accident, you know, whatever you, whatever avenue you personally believe this product is, it doesn't really take away from the fact that at some point, this extreme censorship, this extreme indemnification means that you're not allowed to have any sovereignty over yourself. You know, we saw that with the vaccine mandates, with not being able to talk about alternative treatment, with not being able to talk about natural immunity. And actually, when you go back into that indemnification clause, it does actually say in there, in the event that an alternative medicine or an alternative treatment is found, they're not allowed to use it. 
Oh my God. Yeah. And that could even be the difference between one that actually works and one that doesn't. Exactly. And then you've got, you know, someone like Israel signed their non-disclosure contract for 30 years and most other countries, I think was about 10 years. But where does this end? When does the indemnification end? When can we start talking about what is inside our bodies? What is the analysis of that chemical? What is the ingredients? What serialization batches are there? And protecting our own personhood, protecting our own sovereignty. Well, it might be too so, late for that. Well, particularly if there's something in that indemnification that has then assigned a patent or a property rights over you. So, okay, let me get this uh, straight. The thing, um, well, they call it transcribes at a DNA level information, right? Certain information, which means that that, um, that, and there's patent held for that. So that gets wired into you. <laughs> Does that mean that they own a piece of you potentially? Is that is that kind of what you're saying? That's what I'm wondering. I would love an intellectual property patent rights lawyer to step forward and run a hypothetical, hypothetical, you know, scenario on what would happen if it, taking it away from a human medicine and taking it away from um, the current context that it's in, shift it right back to something really basic like a shoe or a cow, right? Something like that. Run, run the the moot court of you know a plus b equals c don't want to give away all my ideas on okay. air yeah, fair enough. um but what you know what would actually happen and then putting it in another context what would happen if a country was advised or was leaked that there was going to be a full-scale anthrax attack on the population and to be warned and to be careful and that another nation state was at war and wanted to damage you know, it's sovereignty, it's economics, it's personal and public health. Why would that then mean that the four regulators that are supposed to protect and uphold citizen state security didn't do anything at all? Yeah. Okay, so in terms of the, the contract, so what do we need to find out at... This is, you know, better down to this inquiry again. What do we need to find out about this at an inquiry? Can we break it down into, you know, some key points? So when the time comes, people can sort of remember those points and go, hey, wait on, you're not talking about that. Absolutely. So I think there's a whole lot of people right back to the beginning who have been raising these questions and they need to all come together, almost like a people's tribunal to really be talking about what red flags were raised for them right at the beginning and and what 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 do we need to look down into an inquiry. Obviously, it's going to be really hard to find out what we signed to in New Zealand, but what is actually on that Pfizer contract? What did we sign to? And for me, one of the key questions I think is most important is in the event that vaccine damages or countermeasure damages become so financially damaging what has new zealand signed over as a mortgage or as a future collateral in the event of acc not being able to fulfill the indemnity 
I've been worried about this too. Okay, so we've heard in other countries, I think Argentina, that they actually signed away or about to sign away national assets. Exactly. Significant national assets. Exactly. And this goes back to what I said earlier in the show on the waiver of sovereign immunity clause. So the waiver of sovereign immunity is talking about securing state-owned assets as future collateral or security in the event of not being able to raise the funds. You've got military bases, federal reserves, oil, airlines, gas, water, you know, the whole shebang, which is why some of these big countries didn't want to sign in the first place and labelled it vaccine terrorism. Yeah. For me... Is that, again, could that be part of the fraud... um, description because you could this is my mind running away with me but you could set up a situation where at some point you you could be claiming those assets well at the moment one of the things that i thought was worrying about the texan case is they're setting up the provision that pfizer is not allowed to go bankrupt oh so (laughs) Really? That doesn't yeah. work with, with, well, with business? That's I don't how business un- works? I don't understand that either. And to me, that's a bit of a, like, let off the hook because we've seen, um, you know, right back to 2009 when a whistleblower very first um, alerted the world to Pfizer's fraud all the way back then, um, which, by the way, led them to have the world's largest criminal fine for huh, blood clots. Yeah. Heart attacks, myocarditis, pericarditis, so 2009. And out of that court case, um, you know, they set up a regulator or a watchdog body to monitor corporate fraud and um, criminal activity out of corporates. And Pfizer basically lobbied (laughs) the FDA, bought the regulators and ended up lobbying against the false misleading um claims act as well to stop whistleblowers being able to do the work that they needed to do so you've got all manner of fraudulent um misrepresentative um breaches that could come to trial but it's just trying to work out how yeah so We'd have to hear from all the decision-making committees, task forces, wouldn't we, and, and advisory groups here. Um, so they would all have to be appearing, wouldn't they? Well, for a start, I think the four main people that need to really come to the party to be and to be investigated is the EPA, Environmental Protection yep. Agency, MPI, Ministry of Primary Industries, MedSafe, and WorkSafe. Because right. they are the four regulators that should have done their job, should have upheld due diligence um, and and done all their components um, of, of making sure that this product was safe. And so with the EPA, I this freaked me out and gave me a massive red flag right from the beginning because okay. I, I understood the EPA from my work with pesticides and also from my understanding of the regulator capture that the pesticide industry is under with the Environmental Protection Agency. But the EPA, Pfizer was actually supposed to apply to the EPA to get approval 
to import a new, you know, a new organism into New Zealand. Somehow the EPA made a decision-making committee. (laughs) This is just actually mind-boggling, by the way. They made a decision that because it was being injected into people's arms, it was not a hazard to to the environment, and therefore it could be cleared under the the hazard, you know, has the HSCNO Act and the Biosecurity Act because it wasn't going to be an effect to the environment. Then they also said that it didn't need a chemical analysis because under the HSNO Act, human medicines didn't need to be analysed by the EPA, that safety assessments were the um, responsibility of the manufacturer or the supplier and they would just go off their safety sheets. Okay, and we pay these people. All right. Yeah. Um, so they were looking for any way to disengage. Absolutely. And so, you know, they've ignored that stream. You've got MPI. So, so all those folk need to be in front of inquiry explaining that. Absolutely. They, they need yeah. to be held to account as what they were doing when they literally contradicted New Zealand's GE-free and GMO-free treaty, um, our biosecurity, diversity protection, our human health protection, um, and our Ministry of Primary Industries. This became a clear follow-the-money trail. It was a bilateral trade agreement. Someone somewhere got financially incentivized and made money and yep. swung decisions and avoided all... We, we need to know who that th- they or that per- person or individual, if it was. Well, there is actually a bit of a trail of that. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so you've got um, Dr. Peter Crabtree, I think, is it David Clark, David, was it Robinson? Um, you know, there are names out there. In the, those the, those are politician names, or, or a couple of those were. Is that, is that who you're referring to? Names, yeah, of who signed off the indemnity, the financial indemnity, um, that it is out there. So it's just a case of drilling down more on holding them to account on on the violation of the due diligence. There's been no due, due diligence. And actually, there's another... Um, well, they would have known that there was no due... They would have known that as they're doing that. They would have known that. It's obvious uh, to anyone, isn't it? I think so. And, the, you know, the fact that there's a... I think it was the Haumaru um, COVID inquiry into the traffic light um, framework, that was... That was shown, and that through that inquiry, that there was no quantitative or qualitative data um, done, and it was. I think the wording is something like they own. They own. They only did it because social license was waning. Gosh, these people, man! I'm, I don't want to lose it here, but who do you think you freaking are treating us like that? Mm. Anyway, just saying. What about um, medical council? Um, you know, uh, all those bodies that were sort of hovering around this as well. Um, you would you would hope that there would be critical thought in those groups. Um, do they need to? I mean, there's a whole list of them. Um, do they need to be in front of an inquiry as well to explain why they were so easily? 
they were such an easy pushover and why they were so nasty to their to their members as it turned Ab- out absolutely i mean i think you know these decision making committees these government task force these advisory groups um all citing you know timeliness not due due diligence that's the, they see that priority. as their get out of jail card right timeliness exactly but really you know what what they need to be looking at is to the extent of how much interference there was in guidance statements such as the medical council um the IHRA, you know the, the human rights commission these these were all rewritten duties of conduct was rewritten i mean i my my expertise and my knowledge is is not i'm i'm not a doctor I, i'm I, I don't know anything about medicine that's you know guy hatchard nzd so that's their field but where i would be concerned is if i was a doctor or a nurse or particularly if i was a doctor and i had my own practice and you know i start getting my hippocratic oath my duty of conduct my you know my paperwork of upholding patients care and duty of care come in to me to be re-signed totally against the principles of health sovereignty and patient responsibility and due diligence i would not be able to reconcile with myself every day at work if i had to sign that Um, i'm sure there are a few that are struggling with that but then we find out that um you know 36 dollars for a dose during working hours 56 outside working hours 62 i think it was in the weekend if you've got a practice with two thousand people on the books calculate that yeah i mean for a long time i i guess i tried to stay compassionate and that i thought they were doing the right thing and they're in a rock and a hard place there's people sick there was that intense fear campaign coming out of you know think tanks in in this in england saying that you know guilt and shame are the biggest um, motivator for um obedience and and collusion um again a military operation 77th brigade so just saying another military aspect to this so you know i'm I'm sure that there were a lot of people that and right in the beginning really did think that they were doing the right thing and there was a lot of panic and you know a lot of expedience pressure but at what point does your gut does your does your instinct does your common sense does your principles, your integrity, your morals start saying, this is not right. This is not making any sense. There's gaslighting. There's cognitive dissonance. I mean, I've, I was in the refugee camps um, and had to pull out because to me, I just ended up seeing it as a massive border economy and a huge campaign of corruption. And I could not go in there every day with my badge of humanitarian aid worker knowing i was doing the right thing i was totally doing the wrong thing and so you know i I know that people have mortgages to pay and you know careers to uphold and but it's phenomenal it really is phenomenal the level of pressure that people were put under and you know most people now three years on you know they say well i never would have done it if i had known i wouldn't never have taken it if i didn't have to pay the mortgage or I didn't have to have my job or wasn't allowed to go to my gym or I wasn't allowed to see my daughter or I wasn't allowed to go to my elderly parents rest home 
I mean, this, you know, we really need to start looking at the censorship now and the indemnity now and the whys. It it's, seems that the censorship oh, was there to serve the indemnity. I think so. It was all, all part of the uptake of the the buy-in to the product. It's a marketing campaign. As you if you read Sasha Latipova's work, you know, she's very strong on as a PR consultant for the pharmaceutical industry. She is like, this is nothing new. It's nothing new. It's just yeah, but it's the grand scale, isn't the it? It's, the grand scale. It's yeah. a, it's next level, and it's multiple governments, and yeah. Um, all right, okay. So if if it's fraud fundamentally, that voids everything, doesn't it? Or is that not even certain? I think that's where we need a contract lawyer to come in and say, you know, under what conditions can you nil and void a contract? If at the very get-go, before you even entered into the agreement, because this is where it's a bit like duress, right? Because the indemnity only starts when the purchaser and the indemnity relationship begins. So until you buy the product, you don't have to uphold the indemnity. So... Is there a way that we can argue in a court of law that we were never, we were never, it's not around informed consent, but the product itself that we were receiving was never what we thought we were getting in the first place. No, so that it was LBS as it turned out. It wasn't yeah, the a vaccine, why, it was a gene therapy, right? That number one. Yeah, the reasons um, why we would need to need it, what it was, the ingredients, um, yeah. that, the flip-flopping between at one point of the operation, it was an investigative um, medicine, and then it was a non-investigative one. one. At one point, it was a clinical med medicine, then it's a non-clinical medicine. What the hell is it? <laughs> and so what have we signed to if it keeps changing? You can't put a patent on something that keeps changing, that keeps shifting. Okay, back to where we are today and the whistleblower thing. So all the, this um, lockdown on information all starts to make some sort of sense then, do you think, given what we have been talking about with that contract? Because that doesn't allow any information, any expression of any opinion. Uh, that seems to have, have covered everything you could think of. So that's why we don't have stats being released by the Ministry of Health to prove that we don't have an excess death rate, things like that. Is it, do, do you think we can read the lack of action, let's say, into what is in that contract? I think, I think so, because if you look at, it's really curious, right? If you look at other court cases that are not related to Pfizer or the vaccine, they have won. So you've got, I think, I can't remember the exact name, but it was like a case against Bolton versus, I guess it was the government or the Defence Force because it was um, them who were upholding the, the MIQ on the border. This particular case, they argued that they were over in the States, I think it was, I, I can't really remember this, I, so I, I don't want to get it wrong, but let's just say what I'm about to say is a little bit hazy. It is the, the, there is a court case out there that you could read to, to Yeah, I remember Murray Murray Bolton, right? Yeah, so he 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 argued man. that he could fly in on his own. I think was it private jet, maybe. Yeah, cool. And that he could go straight to his home and he could isolate there. He didn't need to go to MIQ, and it wasn't fair, and he won. So you've got you know people that um, said that they were unfairly dismissed from work, that um, they weren't a risk. 
it kind of is beginning to appear that any time there's a court case that doesn't actually involve um, breaching, upholding FISA, defending FISA, making sure they're not harmless, um, they win. But anything else is really hard to get any sort of judiciary or judge to really look down into into breaches. So to me, that kind of says it all, right? It's a test case. If we try to argue something that doesn't breach that contract and the indemnity and it wins, well, is that not just a no-brainer? Is there anything that we've missed in this? Uh, I mean, I'm guy on the street trying to get my head around it. You've done so much uh, deep diving into it, obviously. I hope we've sort of covered the main points so people listening can get an idea of of, of what this means and where it's heading. Is there anything that, that we need to say before we finish chatting here? Um, I think, yeah, I think we've pretty much covered it. I mean, if we're going to do an inquiry, I do really think it's really important to question, you know, were any of these advisory boards and these um, disciplinary sort of hearings and these task force groups, you know, were they actually set up as part of the operation to right. uphold the indemnity? Yeah. The framework. The framework. Um, yeah. 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 And so, you know, and then how much of our current debt in New Zealand right now is con- linked to a controlled economic demolition through you mean this- the 200 billion? Yeah through this waiver wow. of sovereign immunity. Because if if we got, let's just say hypothetically, we got that contract and we saw that New Zealand's water was on that list. Ah, uh, yeah. Then you could maybe get some three waters panelists in to talk about the complexity of having a national resource requiring full deregulation, decentralization and corporate control, well, why would that be? Well, I think one of the aspects to Three Waters, it's probably a bit different now, but who knows, was that uh, the way it was set up, um, there was an iwi component who had a veto. And if the iwi did business with, let's say, BlackRock, <laughs> and um, and, and there was objection to that. It could be vetoed. So I, know I, that's... Do, I do think this is quite a curious area too, because one of the things I've been wondering is it's a kind of timely and kind of coincidental that around the world right now, there's a whole lot of very previously pro um, left liberal governments that were putting in things like UN drip um you know united nations declaration of rights of indigenous peoples and treaties around self-determination sovereignty protections treaty of waitangi a great cover the voice but they actually are now wanting to renege on them and get rid of them i'm wondering if there's any loopholes in these treaties and in these legislative frameworks that mean we do have an avenue of protection and that's why they want to get rid of them Okay, gee. Well, I mean, everything's on the table if if there are no answers. Yeah, and everything's on the table if you need to sell off all your assets. I mean, Shane Jones opening up the mining, opening up the, the national parks, the gas, the oil. Well, okay, it's starting to look like capture everywhere. Oh, so, 
Okay. I'm just so they they're they're part of it too. Well, I'm not really sure if part of it is everywhere to me through history has been about resource extraction. Follow the money, follow the resource, follow the dispossession, follow the collusion, follow the poverty, the oppression. Um, and generally it's a proxy war wanting a resource and a, a couple of key players wanting to make huge amounts of profit and money off off that resource. So if, you know, if if we've signed, if these countries, let's just take New Zealand out of the equation because we just actually don't know for the minute, but some of these countries that have signed off that they are going to have their assets as collateral, well, you're not going to be able to do that if they're protected. Right. I got you. Gee, all right. Um, interesting chat. <laughs> thanks for coming on, yeah, Nadine thanks, Connick. Thanks for having me. Um, I really look forward to where the inquiry is heading and really welcome, you know, all sorts of people that have got, that are following the fraud. Because I think that's that's key now. Where You know, where we're at is we've gone from follow the money, follow the science to follow the fraud. Though I'm um, getting back to Barry Young, isn't it kind of weird the circumstances or, or the or the the sort of the method by which they've gone after him? It's essentially just an employment dispute, um, from what I can make out between. Well, it's it, not, it, is it? With the indemnification clause. No, well now we know that. Mm. And the other thing that I think could possibly be at play is New Zealand's always a testing pl platform. It's a guinea pig. Our demographic is, is very good. Look at FPOST. Um, you know, yeah. we're, we're, all, we're always going to test, test the waters. So let's just say they're testing the waters on what the world would do if major data was leaked, if a major contract indemnification breach was leaked. How does the world respond? How do the courts respond? How does the public respond? How does the government respond? How does Pfizer respond? And then this is a data grab. So they're going to collect all the data of what happens to make sure that it doesn't happen elsewhere when everyone yeah. starts to click on to what's happening. And you've got huge, huge, you know, um, economic injury public injury, vaccine damage, compensation, litigation. And for those that don't know, one of the curious things about the contracts, if you're talking about it being sitting in health and sitting in medical um, sort of field of industry, but arbitration needs to be done through the International Chamber of Commerce and to me, that goes back to product, patent, intellectual property rights. It's going in, in, in that particular court framework, not anywhere else in, in legal jurisdiction. And then you've also got the, the, the contract signing to all court cases and all major um, disputes need to be um, done in the New York state. Do you think that anyone's having sleepless nights? I'm thinking of... Who signed this contract? Well, I did wonder about Aisha Viral the other day, panicking and becoming a bit strange in her behaviour because she was the one that signed off in Chris Hipkins' absence of being sick. Oh, that was handy for him. Mm, yeah. So who knows? 
But yeah, wow. how do they how do they sleep at night? Last question. We're talking about inquiry for us. You mentioned um, what's happening in Texas, but are there any other country scale? Is there any pushback? Is there any demand for an inquiry? Is there any le legal proceedings? Um, you know, against Pfizer. Is there anything that we can look to? Um, you know, as we consider what to do here. Absolutely. So at the moment, probably one of the biggest um, cases is coming out of Italy. They have literally taken um, an investigation to look at co the COVID-19 vaccines as murder. Um, and so wait, wait on. Murder. <laughs> murder. Big words. Oh, so it's all, it's all eyes on Italy at the moment. Um, the Philippines have actually opened an, an investigation. And Iceland is a curious one. So Iceland have um, said that you can currently get a flu vaccine, but COVID-19 vaccinations have been removed. However, yeah. if you want to get a COVID vaccination, you have to bring four other people with you that are willing to get vaccinated as well. Okay. So they're not publicly... Um, promoting it, they're not recommending it, but they're now also saying, if you really, really, really want it, yeah, we'll give it to you, but find four other people that believe in it, trust it, feel safe with it, and then the five of you can have it. I don't get, I don't get that. I don't really get that either, but do you know what I would think? I don't personally know in my group of friends at the moment, anyone that I could, I couldn't get for people to come with No, me. well, it would be impossible now, I think. So curious strategy, that one. And then obviously you've got the UK, um, multiple parliamentary debates happening right there um, and multiple parliamentary debates out of the, the states, but fascinating and, and of course, back, back into the censorship and the indemnification, they actually block out that particular part of the debate um, so you can't you can't read it, but the, the really, it really is moving very fast around the world right now. The investigation, the inquiries, so it really is watch this space and, and keep up with those people that I, I suggested at the beginning to follow the fraud. So there is some hope. I think there is hope. Okay, Nadine Connick, thanks for coming on RCR and being the main part of our first inquiry session. Thanks for having me. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Loving what you're hearing? Well, the establishment hates it. And right now they're conjuring up new ways to try and censor RCR. To ensure you never miss a beat of the hard-hitting news you've come to know and love, make sure you're on the RCR mailing list. Get connected now at realitycheck.radio forward slash email.